to Florence. I'm a patron of the Lebri Poetry Festival. And it's my great pleasure to welcome you here, to welcome our friends online who are watching all around the world. We would just like to mark, I think, after the last two years of extremity, our deep gratitude to the Arts Council of England, the principal funder of this festival, who saw us through the bad times and continue to support us now. It's a visionary, I think, investment and an incredibly valuable one, and we wouldn't be here without it. So thank you to them. Um, thank you most of all to Mererid, who is here not only today, but also tomorrow, because these are the first two in a new series that we're running called The Dead Poets Society. On the understanding that, we would like to take, with this festival as a context, the opportunity to celebrate some great poets from around the world who are lesser known than they might be in the English language, in England. Um, we're starting with Gabriela Mistral, who is not published by an English publisher or in the English language here, although there is a very good um, American translation by Randall Crouch, which is um, University of Chicago Press. Uh, she is in Hispano-America, the iconic poet of the last 200 years. Uh, we will talk a little bit about why. We would like to say that although Mererid is in fact a professor of literature, has taught Spanish and German, um, she is the chair of Welsh and Celtic studies at the University of Aberystwyth, we're not approaching this from an academic point of view. We are fans, um, devotees, and we'd like to share our enthusiasm for this poet, as tomorrow uh, Mererid will share with Owen Shears and Aidan and Taliesin, and then we'll be talking about uh, Dufu and uh, Homer and uh, Irina Ratushinskaya, and I'm pretty sure that the question of whether or not uh, Soviet, Russian, or Ukrainian identity will be most um, relevant there. So, first of all, Mererid, thank you very much yeah, for coming. Well, thank you for the invitation. I should say that Mererid not only is an academic, but one of the most uh, fantastic poets of the Welsh language that we have ever had. She has the extraordinary distinction of having won not only the um, Bardic Chair and the Crown, but also the Prose Medal at the National Eisteddfod. This is, in this week's terms, rather like winning the singles, doubles, mixed doubles at Wimbledon <laughs> all, all together. Um, and for a, for a poet from um, an international language, it's also your practice, isn't it, to engage with other languages, to translate as part of your practice? That's right, I, I write in Welsh. Um, that's my, my first language, uh, the language of my, my thoughts. Um, but yes, uh, there have been times when I've translated uh, into other languages and sometimes from other languages into Welsh. Um, and then really, very rarely, I try to write... Uh, uh, I've written one or two things in English, mainly uh, to do with the, the peace news was... Uh, uh, had a campaign uh, to coincide with some posters. And just to note today, of course, the, uh, the funeral of Bruce Kent, whom we admired so greatly and was a great friend of Wales, uh, and our apostle of peace, Henry Richard, uh, who stands on the square in Tregaron. Um, and when you think about that man <laughs> taking with him this word arbitration from West Wales, uh, uh, all the way to the Tsar in Russia, and uh, we need men like Henry Richard and Bruce Kent today. Let's start with, well, let's start with the 12th of December, 1914. Um, a young 25-year-old teacher who's, after a challenging educational catastrophe, um, has somehow become an incredibly effective primary school teacher and then a secondary school teacher. And she enters, um, under a pseudonym, the Juegos Florales, the big annual poetry competition in Santiago de Chile, and she wins. Indeed. But crucially, she doesn't go to collect her prize. That's right. Yes, this is, well, the person we know today as Gabriela Mistral. 
uh, but that wasn't her name. She was born, for me to get it right, she was born... Uh, let's go who's on the next page because it's quite a long name. Uh, Lucila Godoy Alcayaga is the shortened version uh, of her name in, uh, in Vicuña, in the Alqui Valley in Chile. Um, she dropped that name, uh, taking Gabriela because of the... Well, there are various reasons she gives for this, uh, aren't there? Uh, the Archangel Gabriel, uh, Gabriel uh, but also Gabriele D'Annunzio, the Italian poet, and then Frédéric Mistral, the Provençal poet, but more importantly, the Mistral of the wind. Uh, she thinks that the wind is the most spiritual of all the elements, um, more so than the water. So this Gabriela Mistral, um, the myth around her starts perhaps then, uh, not turning up to collect the prize because she is too humble. Uh, that's one line. She didn't have the right kit, the right dress uh, is another. She watched the celebrations from a nearby balcony, uh, not wanting to take any attention, get any attention for herself. And then the passion of the poems, uh, Los Sonetos de la Muerte, the sonnets of death. And, and they are passionate and emotional, as so much of her work is. And, and they're passionate because the uh, young man with whom she was in love, mm. Romelio Reta, had committed suicide. Yeah. And she writes these sonnets partly to him and partly about him. And they are linguistically fascinating. And we'll talk a bit more about the, the, the seeds of her language. Mm. But they're also fantastically disturbing. Mm. Because not only does she at one point um, say that now that he is dead and, and buried, no other woman can have him... Mm. But she then goes on to blame herself for his suicide. Uh, there is the beginnings of a kind of spiritual anguish which grows and grows throughout her life. It grows and, and keeps on growing, despite the fact that she you know, has a very, you could say, successful, very bold career. Um, is very prominent in so many ways, ends up as diplomat and consul and so on, travels the world. And yet the poems do have this deep anguish um, right through to the end. Now, having said we're going to start in 14, let's just go back, because the other, the first massive loss, the abandonment in her life, mm. is her father, who, right. like many men who followed the um, exigencies of finding work in the nitrate industry that became so much of a part of Chilean culture, left his his family, as many other men did. And I think her feeling of solidarity and responsibility and empathy for other women in her situation um, is expressed as well, isn't it? That's one of the other, one of the three great losses of her, that's, male losses of her life. That's right. Um, her whole childhood is sort of characterised by the the presence of the absence, if you like, the father who isn't there, who left them when she was three. But he was a, a poet. He loved poetry. He played the guitar. Uh, he was an educator and loved traveling. So she inherited a lot of that from him. And she was brought up by her mother, a sister who was about 14 years uh, her senior. And then the paternal grandmother, uh, who gave her the Bible, as she says, the panorama in which her eyes dwelt for long. And, and she learned from the Bible the, the, the phrases, the music, the verses, and that had a great impact on, on the way she shaped and cadenced her, her poetry and her lines. But yes, the father, uh, and later a poem called La Abandonada, which we may, may end up looking at, um, still talks about probably that abandonment sense. So it's an intensely female environment, which, uh, interestingly, the word matriarchy never appears in any of the studies of her, nor does she use it. But the Spanish word um, for motherhood and maternity, maternidad, embraces both those things, but doesn't suggest a hierarchy, does it? It's, it's curious, the whole motherhood thing with Gabriela Mistral, um, because... Um, she does use that uh, and, and indeed uh, takes that as 
in many ways the ideal of womanhood and yet and, and that's odd and perhaps difficult for us today um, but she gave these mothers a sense of power and as far as we know she herself never gave birth although she did adopt um, a child um, whom we believe was some kind of nephew um, somebody turned up claiming to be her half-brother and gave her this boy um, and maybe we should Let, let's come back we'll to come him back to because that he, right he, he is the third great mm. catastrophe of mm. her, of her mm. loss but let's just stick with this idea of, of what might now feel slightly problematic uh, ostensibly traditionalist, Catholic, conservative focus on motherhood mm. within that um, primacy of nurturing mm. is a, a really burning, fierce, radical commitment mm. to education, which shows itself. What happens to her? She starts off as an elementary school teacher. She gets promoted. And for a woman who is fiercely independent, she ma one of the things she did exceptionally was manage the patronage of powerful men. <laughs> Publishers... Uh, government officials, her, one of her great friends, um, Pedro Aguirre Cerda, who she knew from childhood, subsequently becomes president of Chile. Um, she, she rises up administrative ranks, so she becomes a, a spectacularly influential educator and then gets poached by the Mexicans. Yes. <laughs> the Mexicans say, you are our, our superstar, Cristiano Ronaldo, MVP. Come and rewrite mm -hmm. our curriculum. Come mm. and create a canon mm. for education. Now, th mm. this is partly because of her poems for children, and we'll come back to that in a second. But mm. the, the, the letters and the lectures she writes to women mm. around this... Mm say quite clearly, mothers. Mm. Everything about, for mm. women is about motherhood. And you're thinking, oh, yeah, yeah. And then she comes and says, and what you've got to instill in your children are the rights of children, the rights of young women to be educated. And I, I think the only way you can sort of accommodate what looks like conservatism now is to say, starting from the, the idea that the women and children were oppressed in that society, yeah. This is radical. This, this is quite, and, and giving them that voice, if you like. Remember the difficulty she herself had to even get herself educated. Mm. Um, she she was thrown out of various places. She was she was considered to be a bit of a troublemaker. Um, some say that the the pantheist elements in her poetry, you know, was just not in keeping with with the Catholicism of of that period, and no way an educator could be anything but that. Uh, so there are all kinds of, of things going on there, but it meant that in the end she was always on the side of the oppressed, the one who'd had a raw deal, the one who'd missed out on the fair play, and in yes, certainly on the side of mothers and children. Now, the, the first collection which comes out mm, 10 years after she wins the prize is called Desolation, which is not, yeah, it's not, uh, it, it's not a huge journey from the poems that won the prize. It includes them. And then she produces this extraordinary collection called Ternura, which means tenderness. Te tenderness. Yeah. Desolation, of course, means despair. And there is quite a bit of despair in the poems, but, but, but there's also this strength. I, I don't think we want to let anybody leave thinking it's all about grief and, and, and death and despair. There's a strength in Mistral's poems that flow right through them. And, and, the, and the Ternura also has these children's poems, the idea yes. of writing for and to children. Yes, and, and, and lullabies. We haven't talked at all about form. And it's interesting, um, she... She let the lullaby form, just like the, the Bible we talked about, influence her. She takes what seems to be a very simple form and makes something of it and recognises the importance of this form for mothers. Uh, she's written, you know, that all the early Evas, all the Eves, you know, uh, that they must have realised that rocking a child on your knees would help them go to sleep, but then if you murmur some sounds... They go to sleep earlier, not the children I had, but there we are. Uh, and then, uh, and then, then of course, the mothers would 
make up words. And as she so rightly points out, those words are nothing to do with consoling the babies. Those words are for the mothers. Because when you think about, well, certainly I think about some Welsh lullabies, the words are, are deeply moving from a mother's point of view. You know, somebody isn't there or somebody's gone away. And, and it's, it's about those. And this is what she does. And shall we? Yes, read please. One? <laughs> so I've tried to translate uh, one of these. Um, so you want me to read the English first, you said, and then well, the Spanish? Only in that we then know what we were listening okay. to. If we so don't now speak you're Spanish. going to have. Um, South American Spanish in a South Wilian accent. I hope, I hope you, can, you can live with that. But first, you'll, you'll have the English. So it's something like this. This Canciones de, Canciones de Cuna, uh, Cradle Songs. And this is one I picked. And it goes like this. The sea and its thousand waves, rocks divine. Hearing the lover's seas, I rock this child of mine. The vagabond wind of the night rocks the wheat so fine. Hearing the lover's breezes, I rock this child of mine. God rocks his thousand worlds, a fatherly, silent sign. Sensing his hand in the shadows, I rock this child of mine. And in Spanish... El mar, sus millares de olas, mese divino. Oyendo a los mares amantes, meso a mi niño. El viento, erabundo en la noche, mese los trigos. Oyendo a los vientos amantes, meso a mi niño. Dios Padre, sus miles de mundos, Mese sin ruido, sintiendo su mano en la sombra, meso a mi niño. I, I, sorry, I just should say, when we originally posited this, I didn't say, oh, I'm ready, would you also translate all these poems? <laughs> we were just going to talk about this. This is a, a, an extra special no, gift. No, no, no. Can I just pull out two things from... Mm from that poem. The other thing that is pointed out about her early work is that it is steeped in Catholicism and from, for where she was from also, and Forrest Gander was making this point just yesterday about translating the new Neruda poems that have been discovered. He said he went back to Chile, found the place that they were written and found that some of the vocabulary was not only specific to that valley, mm. but also specific to a sort of 30 year period of the 20th mm. century when those words were common. Mm. So on the one hand, she's, as she said, the Bible and St. Francis uh, were uh, formative mm. linguistic mm. influences, but there are, there are also words here mm. which feel uh, they're described as sort of rustic. Yeah, uh, it, it's so difficult, and, and I think we know we we need. Yeah, but this is a whole whole other uh, discussion. But what we can't forget, and we've already jumped into thinking, oh yes, people probably have heard of Neruda. When you think of Chile, you think of poetry, you think of Neruda. You don't, or we don't, not here. Think of Gabriela Mistral. But much before. Neruda or Mistral or any other Spanish-speaking person of literature, there are other languages in Chile, of course. Uh, I'm thinking perhaps of the Mapuche people uh, and, and their um, poetry in Mapuzungun um, is something that I, I don't know where the influences of that kind of language is that might have been on Gabriela Mistral. But I think it would be lovely if Perhaps Ledbury one day would like to think about inviting. It is, after all, the beginning of the decade of indigenous languages, the UNESCO decade. And, and there are some remarkable poets writing in, in Mapuzungun um, in Chile today. And they have ideas that I think we could learn a lot from. But that's another matter. <laughs> Just stay with Neruda for a second. There's a, mm. there's a wonderful story about how Neruda starts writing and is encouraged to write and it's all about 
Gabriella Mistral not having the right kind of coat. <laughs> she was posted to teach in a particular place, which she found simply too cold. And oh, it was right in the south. For a, <laughs> asked for a transfer. And she goes and gets a teaching post in Tamuka, and she meets this pretty talented 16-year-old whom she takes under her wing and mentors and encourages, and that's Neruda. <laughs> and it's all... I'm not saying it's all because, but I love mm. the idea that they met these two <laughs> great giants of, of Hispano-American mm. culture mm. because she had an aversion right. to the culture. But Mistral got the Nobel before Neruda. <laughs> I think we have to remember that too. Not that poetry is a competitive sport. <laughs> not that poetry is a competitive sport. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so what happens to her next is that having become a very successful educator and um, had a phenomenal international career in education, mm. the myth that starts mm. with the humble girl who doesn't go to collect mm. because she's got to teach a primary school class, mm. she is now becoming La Divina Gabriela. La Divina, I mean, what kind of a name is that on a biography? You know, yeah. She was only 43 and they... They write this biography, La Divina, and I've got some books here that sort of show, you know, these are from, from sort of school children's book. Me llamo Gabriela, my name is Gabriela, or here, Conoce a Gabriela Mistral, you know, get to know Gabriela Mistral, and you can see how lovely are the stories are there for children to read, and, and there are schools named after Gabriela Mistral, and there are statues uh, in her shape and figure, uh, you know, oops, she's, uh, yeah. And there's the mythologizing almost of her. And part of her, her, the way in which she becomes iconographic for the whole country is that she gets sent abroad as um, a, a, a consul, mm -hmm. which is sort of like a cultural attache, but has wider ambassadorial uh, mm. significance. Mm. And she goes to Europe, and she's consul in Lisbon and Madrid and Rome, and she... Mm. She leads this extraordinary diplomatic life, mm. which along the way also sort of helps start, is it UNESCO or UNICEF? She goes to Paris to work in something that we would probably call a forerunner of, of, of UNESCO, that's yeah. right. But of course you must remember also this was then 1930s, mid-1930s, and fascism. And was the, gaining ground, and she spoke out against this and then went back to South America, I think, to Brazil first. And this is a time when there was a left-leaning, uh, quite liberal cu political culture in South America. Mm. So the fascism became even more extraordinary. Mm. Now, the two crucial things that happen um, that I think we probably need to talk about are her mother dies... Mm. And mm. this is yet another release of mm. extreme mm. anguish mm. and results in a collection called Tala, mm. which... Is there a, 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 an easy way of explaining mm. what the word means? No, no, you're right. No, there isn't. No. I mean, it's not, it's not falling apart. It's mm. not destruction. Mm. It's a collapse. Mm. Um, and... We're going, uh, with that comes, she, she's been dealing in, uh, yeah, the, the Spanish classical poetic tradition deals in, quite often in eight syllables, nine syllables, and she also deals in Alexandrines, and suddenly she starts writing poetry that is more hmm. broken, is more experimental. Right. Mm. She's not afraid at all to group lines, you know, you might have a five syllabic, six syllabic sounds like in, in, in different batches and different patterns within the same poem. She, yeah, she breaks away in many ways. And then the sort of, the other hammer blow comes in that this boy, Juan Miguel Godoy, who may or may not be her nephew, but is her adopted son, also commits suicide by mm -hmm. eating arsenic in the most distressing way. About 18 years old. Of course, she never accepts that it is suicide. I think we need to say that. But, mm. And do, do we also, at this point, need to say that this is um, happening at the same time, as you say, as the rise of fascism, but also mm. as the massive trauma of European war impacts and she goes back, but she doesn't go back to Chile. No. She never lives in Chile again. 
um, after leaving. Um, she's buried there and she's hailed there at the end, uh, but she's always away living in the States, as you said, I think, in Brazil, back to Italy for a short period, and then, yeah, to the USA. And I, I think it's worth discussing, however briefly, the circumstance of how she was living. There are lots of coy references to her companions at this time, mm. who were women she lived with and worked with and loved with. And it's clear from the letters that one of her partners uh, published in long after her death that this was a profound mm. uh, relationship. Yeah, although that wasn't clear at all at the time. It was almost presented as if Gabriela Mistral was not worldly enough, that she needed these companions to help her get to places and organise sort yeah. of, you know, uninteresting things like money and so on. Um, but yes, Doris Dana, the, the, those letters are... Yeah, I throw another light on Gabriela Mistral for sure. And with the darkness of the war and her son's suicide comes also a, a new lot of reading. She starts obsessively reading the Greeks yeah. and not Aristophanes um, and produces a series of, of poems about Electra, Clytemnestra, Antigone, um, Cassandra, and they don't totally replace, but add to the biblical The Ruth reference. and the Meir and the Martha, Mary, yeah. Martha, yes, they add to that and they bring something else. And, and of course, the lovely, lovely thing about, the powerful thing here about the Spanish language is, of course, uh, the nouns are gendered, you know, they're either masculine or feminine. So there is a... There is a description somebody wrote somewhere. It's almost like an X-ray of womanhood. You have all these different um, projections of what it is to be a woman, and they describe like you know, la abandonada, la something else, la something else. And in English, you lose that because you'd have to say the abandoned woman, the sad woman, the other woman. You have to add the woman. But in Spanish, you can just say la otra, la, la, la. And we have these one after the other, a depiction of a different time, a different phase, a different mood, a different experience. But, but as women... And I suppose to us men, um, you know, that we as people have been through. Can we hear some more? Yes, right. Before we get to those, because they're very vast, uh, this is just one that is um, more. So we're moving from the lullaby now, um, more to something that I'd call a penistelin in Welsh, which is sort of a lyric poem. Um, a folk song almost, and she describes the clouds. But listen to what she has to say. It's this longing not to be where she is. And there is that sense of uh, wanting to be somewhere else, an exile within uh, somehow, and a not feeling quite comfortable um, with herself. And it starts uh, even in this earlier poem called Nubes, uh, to the clouds. So in English, it's something like, Fleeting clouds, clouds to see through, carry my soul through the sky's blue. Far from the home that watches me suffer, far from these walls that see me wither. And then the change in rhythm, carry me passing clouds to the sea side. Let me hear the song of the high tide and in between the waves, in a garland ring, let me sing. Clouds, flowers, figures, draw me the face of the one that's disappearing. Time and faithful leaves no trace. My soul is rotting without him. Clouds, as you go by, hold the breeze on my breast. Clouds have mercy. My lips are open, open, thirsty. And in Spanish, nubes vaporosas, nubes como tul, llevad l'alma mía, 
por el cielo azul, lejos de la casa que me va a sufrir, que me ve sufrir, lejos de estos muros que me ven morir, nubes pasajeras, llevadme hacia el mar a escuchar el canto de la pleamar y entre la guirnalda de, la ola, de olas a cantar. Nubes, flores, rostros, dibujadme a aquel que ya va borándose por el tiempo infiel. Mi alma se pudre sin el rostro de él. Nubes, ¿qué pasáis? Nubes, detened sobre el pecho mío la fresca merced. Abiertos están mis labios de sed. Oh, there's, there's something else that we ought to talk about, and it's the idea of her as a sort of proto-eco-poet, and it's partly the sort of pantheism that comes mm. from her engagement with St. Francis, but mm. she is always understanding human beings within the natural world, within... That's right. Uh, not just the wind and the mountains, but the presence of the natural environment around her is absolutely core to what she's feeling, isn't it? That's right. I mean, she said somewhere that, um, that, that where she came from, it was the size that you could live it to perfection. Uh, and, and in that, there was everything, the vast skies, the mountains, everything there. Um, and she's very aware, I think, of, the, of that... I love the preposition between anyway, but the sense of a love between, the love between man and woman, between individual and humankind, between the soul and the body, between uh, people and, and the, well, as my grandmother used to call God, a bored maur, which means the great being. I love that. Um, and, then, and then, of course, between us as humans and the other living things, and that's very much like... Uh, some of the poetry certainly I've read from the, the Mapuche people, you know, the sense that it is the, the multiverso within, yeah, well, yeah, I, I, I sense that she, and, she has that there. And th this sort of culminates in this extraordinary poema de Chile, which she mm. writes quite late in her life, mm. which takes the form of a kind of a ghost walk from throughout the whole country, mm. accompanied by... Uh, <laughs> a child and an animal mm. and... She is basically flowing through mm. Mm. the it, country. It's that wind spirit thing yeah. again. And, and, and she presents to us, um, yeah, it, it, it's a love for this place from which she felt exiled for so many years. Um, but if you want to know anything about Chile, then you need to read that. And there is an, an I just thinking about exile and uh, the way in which, as the leftist government turned into something much uglier later. Her association with the land and with the people of the land mm. is so complete that even General Pinochet, yeah. not a man of hugely subtle sensibility, um, <laughs> elevates her into a symbol of nationhood, which becomes, mm. for the people of Chile, mm. quite a... Um, rebellious idea, mm. so that this woman who might have been perceived as a conservative guardian of the land mm. becomes the protector of the land mm. as well as of the people. That's right. There's another poem here I translated, um, which is called The Three Trees, Tres Arboles. Now, the significance of three pieces of wood uh, in the context of somebody called La Franciscana, uh, is clear, but I think there's much more here. And what you sense is that um, Gabriela Misala, or the poetic voice here, at one with these, again, abandoned trees. Shall, shall I read yeah, this? please. Um, three felled trees are left over on the bank of the track, forgotten by the woodcutter, talk together, cut up like three blind lovers. 
The evening sun sets its fiery blood in the wounds of the logs, and the winds lift up the fragrance from their split open sides. Twisted, one tree, foliage trembling, extends its vast arm towards another, with wounds like two eyes brimming full of prayer. Forgotten by the woodcutter, night will come and I shall be with them. I shall receive in my heart their mild resin and they will be to me as if of fire. Then, silent, ashen, day will find us in a heap of hurt. Sad. What does it sound like in Spanish? In Spanish, tres árboles caídos quedaron a la orilla del sendero. El leñador los olvidó y conversan apretados de amor como tres ciegos. El sol de ocaso pone su sangre viva en los hendidos leños y se llevan los vientos la fragancia de su costado abierto. Uno, torcido, tiende su brazo inmenso y de follaje trémulo hacia otro, y sus heridas, como dos ojos, son llenos de ruego. El leñador los olvidó. La noche vendrá, Estaré con ellos. Recibiré en mi corazón sus mansas resinas. Me serán como de fuego. Y mudos y ceñidos nos hallé el día en un montón de duelo. I'm thinking they may be pleading would have been better than prayer. There we are. I'll have to revise these translations. What, what was on. the word you translated with kutch? <laughs> oh, yes. Apretados. Apretado. It, apretado. She's got another poem. Apretado means sort of squished up. You know, apretar is to, is to squeeze something. So apretados like that. Is, I thought kutch was the right word there. <laughs> we can give the English uh, a language. Um, but she has another poem. Oh, um, Apretados de mí. I think I did. I, I, I didn't translate it, but I got a line about this because it it just struck me. Um, it's probably duermete apegado a mí. Apegado, same kind of thing, you know. Um, sleep pressed into me, and in it she describes how she's rocking this child, and she herself is afraid to go to sleep in case the child slips from her arms. I don't know if you've. And I'm sure we've all had that feeling, you know, you're coaching the child to sleep and then think, oh, great, it's sleeping. Now I mustn't sleep in case I drop the baby. Um, it's sort of, ooh, one of those sort of meanings. It, it really spoke, spoke duermete apegado a mi, apresado. There's a distinction that's made sometimes about her language between habla and luenga. Mm. And I'm just, I'm fascinated listening to the English that you're using. <laughs> that it is not self-consciously literary. It, no. it is not conversational. Accessible. Yeah, it's completely yes. accessible. And, and I think maybe that's a mistake, and that's why I was very much drawn to those, those poems that seem so simple, but they're not. You know, I, I often think it is quite easy to write a poem that nobody understands and say, there you are. I'm so brilliant, and none of you can understand it. So, um, uh, you know, it's... I, Yes, it's, and she talks about this, the need to sort of strip down the words. And, and as she gets older, she is more and more concerned with this getting back to sort of almost a primordial language that is closer to the truth, she thinks. Um, but don't be... Um, uh, do, do, don't be... Oh, gosh, with your so I can't think in... Uh, does anybody speak Welsh here? No. Uh, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by the, the, the seeming um, 
simplicity of the form or the language. There is a great <coughs> complexity there. Uh, you know, once you read and read it, yeah, you can get you can get a meaning straight away from a first reading, but there's a deeper and a deeper and a deeper uh, meaning, especially perhaps in all those las, you know, the, la otra, la bondada, la ansiosa, la granjera, la fugitiva, um, that are collected in this uh, aptly called mad women. There's a lovely line she has about vocabulary in an essay, that she, a letter rather, that she writes to um, publisher Fedor Gantz. And she says, when she's talking about, um, she's talking about early, in early times with Desolacion, she says, I was a scandalous romantic. Um, Desolacion scarcely floats on top of all that syrup. I learned later from the classics and from life not to burn as ostentatiously <laughs> as the ferias of Pamplona in order to burn better, that is, with lasting coals, with hidden brands like the eternal Greeks. And, and here's the great paragraph. She says, the whole vocabulary has to be different, either that of the bonfire or that of the brazier. Instead of logs that soon go up in smoke, burning embers that throb slowly and smoothly, nothing left over. I look for primordial words that name truly words without grime or wear, hard as the axles of hawthorn wood in the wagons of my Monte Grande. Just, gosh, mm. She even writes kind of mm. like essays beautifully. She, she, yeah. Yeah, so let's not forget that. It's not just the poems. It's, yeah. the, it's the letters, it's the essays, it's the instructions to mothers. And uh, yeah, uh, as a complete person of letters. Um, because we're, we're going to do this, can, can, we, can we read your, can you read your translation of La Abondana? No, I don't have a translation. Sorry, we misunderstood one another there. I wanted to tell you that I'd found a really good translation. Oh, well, next <laughs> um, By uh, Claire Schaffer. I'm not sure how you say that. Um, I, I found it online, and I think it works about una, from about the uh, una otra. And, oh, this is a difficult one. Oh, we've got to poem. do that one as well. Yeah, I think we need to do yeah. this one okay, more both. than La Abandonada. Um, and the translator's note is interesting. And what she says here is that she's struck by the violent beauty of this piece. So be warned, it is violent. There's a death, there's a killing, and there's a re-killing. Um, the poem seems to try to describe that um, difficult thing that we all have to go through as we grow and do I use the word mature? I'm not sure. Change. Survive. Uh, survive. And have to recognise within ourselves maybe, um, maybe characteristics that we would prefer that they weren't there. And that that growth of the self uh, is a process she recognises here. But she also recognises that there are things inside us that will always come back. And there is a respect for that somehow, the difficulties within us, that they are part of us. Um, and yeah, it is quite difficult to know how to read this poem, but um, in, in the sense of understand it. But the, but the realization of what it is to keep on living with yourself um, is something that struck me. I don't know, the, my voice has been heard a lot. Do you want to read the English? Oh, that's not no, fair because I, you I, haven't I seen want, it. I, okay. want you, I want you to read. So this is the translation, uh, and it's called La Otra, The Other. And this is how it goes. I killed a woman in me, one I did not love. She was the flaming flower of the mountain cactus. She was drought and fire. She never cooled. Stone grounded her. Sky surrounded her. And she never bent to search for water. Where she slept, the grass was scorched from the heat of her breath and the embers of her face. Her speech hardened like quick-setting resin, never letting slip tender words. 
She did not know how to bend this cactus flower. But beside her, I bent and bent. I let her die, robbed her of my heart. She ended like an eagle left to starve. Her wings stilled, she bent, spent, and her last spark fell into my hand. Still, her sisters mourn her, accuse me with their fiery words. They tear me apart. Passing, I tell them, look in the creeks and craft from the clay another burning eagle. If you can't, oh, forget it. I killed her. You all should kill her too. Yeah, that's good. That's quite powerful, isn't it? So, do we want to sneak one more in? <laughs> I, I, I don't have any more translations, actually. But not the ones that I've done. Would you like to read the translation? Well, actually, if I read the, this translation... Uh, the uh, Abandonada? Randall, yeah, I'll okay. read the English translation of La Abandonada. And can you read the Spanish? I shall. Shall we go every other? Oh, okay. Let me just <laughs> find it. I think the line in this is the one where she talks that she is surplus to herself. And has felt that... Oh, that's. That's, that's a difficult feeling, I'm sure. Okay. We've got Verse by verse, then. Go on, then. Okay. Uh, yeah, you're right. The abandoned woman. Just, mm. you know, mm -hmm. la abandonada. And it is dedicated or written to for Emma Godoy. Mm. Now I am going to learn the sour country and unlearn your love which was my only language, like a river that forgets its current bed and banks. Ahora voy a aprenderme el país de la asedía y a desasprender tu amor, que era la sola lengua mía, como río que olvidase el hecho, corriente y orillas. Why did you bring treasures if you could pack no way to forget? It's all left over and I'm left over like a party dress for an unthrown party. My whole life, I swear to God, is left over from the first day. Mm. ¿Por qué trajiste tesoros si el olvido no acarrearías? acarrearías? Todo me sobre y yo me sobro, como traje de fiesta, para fiesta no ha vida. Tanto, Dios mío, que me sobra mi vida desde el primer día. Now give me the words my wet nurse never gave me. I'll babble them madly from syllable to syllable. The word dross, the word nothing, and the word waiting for death. Though they coil in my mouth like gaunt vipers. Denme ahora las palabras que no me dio la, la nodriza. Las palpusearé de mente de la sílaba a la sílaba. Palabra expolio, palabra nada y palabra postrimería, aunque se tuercen, tu, tuerzan en mi boca como las víboras mordidas. I have sat down in the middle of the earth, my love, in the middle of my life, to open my veins and my chest, to peel my skin like a pomegranate, and to break the red mahogany of these bones that loved you. Me he sentado a mitad de la tierra, amor mío, a mitad de la vida, a abrir mis venas y mi pecho, a mondarme en granada viva y a romper la caoba roja de mis huesos que te querían. 
I'm burning all that we had, the wide walls, the high beams, ripping out one by one the twelve doors you opened and closing with axe blows the cistern of happiness. Estoy quemando lo que tuvimos, los anchos muros, las altas vigas, descuajando una para una las doce puertas que abrías y cegando a golpes de hacha el aljibe de la alegría. I'm going to send it flying, the crop we gathered yesterday. Empty the skins of wine and free the captive fowl. I'll break like my body the farmstead's pieces and measure with raised arms the harvest of ashes. Voy a esparcir boleado la cosecha ayer cogida, a vaciar odres de vino y a soltar aves cautivas, a romper como mi cuerpo los miembros de la masía y a medir con brazos altos la parva de las cenizas. How it hurts, how it costs, how divine things used to be. They don't want to die, they resent dying and they open their bright guts. The timbers reason and speak. The wine stretches up to look and the flock of birds rises ragged and slow as fog. Como duele, como cuesta, como eran las cosas divinas y no quiere morir y se quejan muriendo y abren sus entrañas vividas. Los leños Entienden y hablan. El vino empinándose mira y la banda de pájaros sube torpe y rota como neblina. Let the wind come, let my house burn better than a forest of resin. Let the mill and the braced tower topple slantwise and red. My night hurried on by fire let my poor night not last till day. Venga el viento, arda mi casa, mejor que bosque de resinas, caigan rojos y sesgados el molino y la torre madrina. Mi noche, apurada del fuego, mi pobre noche no llegue al día. Translated Radu Crouch. Brilliant. Thank you.